Welcome back to First Peoples Lawcast, a podcast on the defense of Indigenous rights. As part of our commitment to supporting the development of Indigenous lawyers, First Peoples Law offers an annual scholarship in the amount of $5,000 to an Indigenous law student with a demonstrated commitment to serving and advancing the interests of Indigenous peoples. Today we are joined by Tagalik Eccles and Saul Brown, the first annual recipients of this scholarship. In the following episode, First Peoples Law Articled student Charlotte Rose joins Tugalik and Saul for a conversation on Indigenous rights, law, legal education, and more. and welcome to First Peoples Lawcast. Charlotte Rose, Hello everyone, my name is Charlotte Rose. I am from Mayukeo, which is my maternal home and traditional customary group within North Central BC. I belong to both the Staketh and Stalo Nations. I am an articling student here at First Peoples Law and very excited to speak to both of our guests today. First off, congratulations Tagalik and Saul, can you please introduce yourselves? My name is Tagalik Eccles and I'm 22 years old. I'm originally from Rankin Inlet, Nunavut, and I'm attending the Nunavut Law Program in Iqaluit, Nunavut, where I'm completing my final year and will be done in June of 2021. I have lived in Nunavut my whole life and I plan on staying here and starting a career for myself in hopes of helping my community and territory. Being an Inuk in Nunavut, I have had my fair share of struggles but chose to see what I learned from the situations in order to better myself. Good morning. My name is Ajispa. Um, so good morning, everybody. My English name is Saul Brown, and I hold the name Ajispa from the Hilfjöf Nation, the central coast of British Columbia. Um, on my father's side, uh, I come from the house of Himas Gladliasula, or hereditary chief Gladliasula. My mother's side, I'm Michanos from a house, so I have moose mumps or roots to the west coast of Vancouver Island, um, both of which are coastal maritime First Nations communities uh, in what's currently known as British Columbia. And I'm heading into my second year of law school at UVic's joint degree program. Tugalink, you're entering into your final year in the Nunavut Law Program in Iqaluit. Why did you decide to go to law school and how have you found it so far? I found my experience in law to be very um, challenging per se. Um, Law school really changes your perspective on a lot of things. And I found that I grew up fairly quickly um, entering law school so young. Um, But what drew me to law school was I entered Nunavut Sivunik Savut in 2016, and it's a program for Inuit youth where we learn about the land claims and intergovernment relations. And it was then that I realized that um, there's a disproportionate gap between Indigenous people in Canada um, with everybody else. And I got to see the justice system in a light that I had previously not. And it was then where I sparked my interest of doing something where I can be one of the people in my territory to create change and to be able to be an Inuk and experience a lot of the struggles that we face. We have to look at the bigger picture and when you're stuck in a situation or in a small community, sometimes it's hard to see the bigger picture. And I think that's what really drove me to law, um, knowing that I can help others who are in 
sticky situations or even if I wanted to work in government, it would be ideal. Awesome. Um, I can say that is a similar sort of situation for myself being an Indigenous student and once law student. Um, Considering the times that we're in and um, how unprecedented the situation is with COVID, um, how is your next term looking like in light of everything with the with the pandemic? Luckily, Nunavut has had zero cases, so we're slowly starting to open up. Our classroom, um, we're all six feet apart, but um, things seem to be running smoothly. I know they had to make a little bit of last-minute changes because all our profs are fly-in to come teach us. But it looks like it's going to be turning out great. We'll be starting our work placements on Monday in different um, fields of law in the community of Iqaluit. So we'll have the opportunity to learn hands-on during the school year. Nice. So uh, you're entering into your second year of law school at the University of Victoria in the new joint degree program in both Canadian and common law and the Indigenous legal orders. Um, What brought you to law school and how has it been so far? So I wasn't really pulled to law school. I feel like I was pushed to law school as a First Nations person. Um, you know, we live the effects of law, um, you know, under the Indian Act, um, going back and thinking about reflecting on my ancestors on the potlatch ban and residential schools, and which was all policy process and law under Canadian uh, regime. So I think that for me, it was pushed because I, I felt the, the, the effects of uh, basically colonization and it was all legal and it still is legal there's still you know um discriminatory laws like the fisheries act like the forest act and i'll get into that later but um and also see you know disproportionately incarcerated family members like my own family going to jail at rates that was you know triple the national average um and also um so i started going to school and just like uh my uh, other guest on the podcast uh you know, it was it was seen that um, trying to figure out how and like why uh, we face what we face as Indigenous peoples and, and, and coming to know this because you can feel the effects, but then you arm yourselves with, you know, education and words um, to articulate it. And so I went home and I worked uh, as, a, as a negotiator for my community after I finished uh, my political science degree and I negotiated with uh, different um, companies, corporations, and governments, and it was really, you know, we're on these tiny little reserves. We have this big, vast, beautiful territory up in Healthy Territory, and um, but we're, you know, we're constrained to these the reserve system. And so I wanted to understand how Canada assumed sovereignty over my homeland, over my body, over our waters, over our fisheries, um, and uh, having some education. My community entrusted me to. Um, have some negotiations on title outside of the BC Treaty process and um, outside of obviously litigation, but you know, under the guise of reconciliation. And so I, and I couldn't because I didn't understand the Lands Act and you know, the Forestry Act and all these pieces of legislation and the jurisprudence on you know, different court cases. Um, so I felt like I had to come to law school to continue to uh, um, you know, become educated and arm myself to to ensure that um, you know the lands and waters are protected and the lands and waters are are vibrant and healthy for the next generation of young health people. Right on. So I'm just thinking, like in terms of being 
essentially pushed to, um, as you said, to law school and just the indigenous experience and already moving through the, the law school institution itself. What do you wish someone would, would have told you about law school before you had started? Um, I think I wish someone told me that, you know, it's, it's really hard. Um, it's you know, most for most people, and you'll know this, but it's institutional hell. And then for Indigenous people, we understand that, you know, uh, for Canadian law, the foundations are rotten, you know, built on terra nullius and these things that have now been turned over. But we understand that the, the normative aspects of law, when it first came to this, these lands and this what's now currently known as Canada and BC, that it was, it was, the foundations were rotten and it was, uh, so for, for me, it was like understanding that the doctrines on which it's built upon, um, sometimes, you know, you kind of got to learn the cases and just learn the ratios and figure um, it out. You know, find the, the, what's the test, what am I trying to figure out here? And, um, but if you don't, like, if you just do that and you lose that critical eye and lose your understanding, sometimes it hurts, right? It, it, um, you got to kind of protect your spirit. And I wish someone told me that is, you know, this is going to be hard work because um, it does change your perspective. Um, but, you know, really got to protect your spirit and make sure you're spiritually grounded as you go into these, these spaces that are um, inherently adversarial. Yeah, for sure. And I and I can attest to the same sort of experience as well. You know, when my when I went to law school, my dad said the law is not for the faint of heart. And I learned that as I went through my experience, because it's not right. Like it's, as you said, built on really crappy sort of foundations. And you have to learn that plus move through and move through with a bigger class and still try to retain yourself and ground yourself in in who you are as an Indigenous person, right? So I appreciate those comments. So Tagalik, what about you? What do you wish that someone would have told you before you had started law school? I think I would have wished someone would told would have told me that the imposter syndrome is real. Like at times you start to question yourself and you think, am I smart enough to be here? Um, are they sure that they selected the right student for this? And I had to keep telling myself, like, they did choose me for a reason and that I should be more secure in my position as a law student. But it's extremely hard because uh, you kind of get thrown into the deep end. But the other thing that I wish I was told um, was that my perspective on everything um, as I know it would be completely changed like there's an aspect of my thinking that I can no longer shut off like I see things in a certain light certain situations in my community like you understand the logistics behind it or if you see a troubled individual you kind of feel a sense of empathy towards them because you know that the judicial system is not set up in a way that does support indigenous people and there is a higher rate of incarceration and that's a much bigger issue. Um, but that's one thing I had to work on, on not having such a cynical view, not cynical, but like I sometimes envy my friends who aren't in law and they're able to just enjoy things and see them how they are. And then I have to read articles and I completely understand them now. And I'm like, this isn't good. Like, what what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our 
future? What does this mean for our children's future? And like trying to work towards creating um, a better environment that's more friendly towards Indigenous people and Inuit. And as Saul had mentioned, the law is not meant for us. I see it as it's a colonial institution that was meant to oppress us and it continues to oppress us to this day, but that's why there's students like Saul and myself and many other Indigenous and Inuit lawyers who are in law school, so hopefully we can make a change. Yeah, I think that that's one of the unique things in being Indigenous and moving through these institutions is that we're reminded through our lived experience daily, right? Like it doesn't, these issues aren't sort of in the background, they're constant. And then too, with with our goals and moving forward, it's about you know, the generations after us and trying to create a space in which we are successful on our own lands. Tagali, can you tell it, tell the listeners about your work with the Nunavut Literacy Council and the Prime Minister's Youth Council and how it influenced your approach to law? For sure. So this past summer, I worked for an organization in my community that's nonprofit called Nunavut Literacy and Inuktitut, it's called Ilitaksinak. And in September of 2019, I was asked what my boldest idea was to respond to an urgent local need. And I decided that it would be a program for at-risk youth girls. So that's what I created and that's what I did over the summer. The program was called Nukari, which means younger sister. So I wanted to model the big sister program that runs down south. And with this program, we work towards helping young women and girls realize and reach their full potential, discover coping mechanisms, build resiliency, encourage and support formalized education. We offered a safe space to allow women and young girls to express themselves freely by learning communication techniques through team and confidence building activities and we also had individuals who are female in the community come to talk to them um, just to kind of provide mentorship for them and so that they could see that there are successful women in our community and that they are and will be successful women in our community. Um, so we had six female participants um, who I selected and they range from ages 12 to 16. and. Um, We wanted them to see that they have support from community members, but also that they're able to accomplish anything they put their mind to. Um, I really believe that this program was essential for these young girls in the community who might often feel unsupported or fall through the cracks. Um, Two of our participants achieved 120 volunteer hours over the time that we worked with them and they did this through a second harvest program that um, our organization received COVID funding relief from. And basically we created food hamper boxes um, that included a recipe, all the ingredients and the girls put together the packages and delivered them to people who are on the food bank list. And the change in these young girls that we saw from beginning to end was phenomenal. They excelled so well in an environment where they thrived. They got to experience so many things that we might take for granted. A few of them had never gone swimming, so we took them to the lake. 
They received hygiene packages. We received donations from local organizations for the care packages that they received. And at the end of the program, as a thank you for attending every day, we got them a back to school bag with back to school essentials, but we also ordered them um, indoor shoes and gym clothing. And it was a life-changing experience, not just for myself and for the girls. Tagalik, in terms of the Prime Minister's Youth Council, what was your position and how did you move forward in that? My experience on the Prime Minister's Youth Council was fairly positive. I really enjoyed being able to represent Inuit, especially Inuit youth who are extremely underrepresented on uh, any political platform, really. And I got to connect with other youth across Canada who are passionate about different things. But while I was on the Prime Minister's Youth Council, I was able to raise issues that I thought were very important to bring up, which would just be echoed from what the government of Nunavut has been saying to the federal government about lack of infrastructure, poverty, the housing crisis. So my experience on the Prime Minister's Youth Council really opened my eyes to the realities of our territory. Most of the meetings took place down south, but we did have a meeting in Iqaluit, and it was a good opportunity for the other council members to see our realities of like the high cost of living, but also to see how beautiful our land is. Like, I often see comments about people saying like, if it's so expensive to live there, why don't you just leave? If you want to be one of us, if you want to be equal, then you should go down south. But the truth is, I really like being home and I don't ever see myself living down south. And I don't know why there's such disproportionate gaps between southern Canadians and anybody living in the north and indigenous groups. Um, If you take a step back and look at it, you can tell that it's the effects of colonialism taking place and you really start to see it for what it is. And we had the option of extending our time on the Prime Minister's Youth Council and I declined in order to take a position instead with the Ambassadors of Hope. And Ambassadors of Hope are Indigenous youth from around Canada ages 16 to 26 who share messages of hope, culture, strength within our communities and surrounding regions and they often deliver presentations on hope, hardship, healing across schools and communities and the purpose of Ambassadors of Hope is to highlight the successes of Indigenous youth around Canada where oftentimes in the media we are portrayed in a negative light and I really like the message that they had and I felt by joining their organization I would be able to make a bigger difference in my community than I might on the Prime Minister's Youth Council. Wow, those are both just such powerful experiences. And I think too, especially to be working with the youth and seeing the direct results of how that that work has influenced their lives. That's super powerful. I know for myself, I have a 12 year old daughter and, you know, building the next generation is what it's all about. So thank you for sharing that. So you've been involved in direct and legal action to protect herring in your territory. Can you tell us about your work and how it informs your view of law? Yeah, so maybe for the listeners who don't know, uh, herring uh, come into the shores of uh, Celtic territory every spring and they spawn and 
Um, it's my favorite time of year um, as they come and spawn. Wolves come down to the beach to eat the herring spawn. We uh, catch, you know, bears foraging on the beach, uh, whales bubble feeding, um, you know, sea lions and all the seabirds and, and ducks. And uh, so it's like a really vibrant, beautiful time of year. And it's a very joyous time of year because um, it's the spring. So it, it marks our, our bachla or our food harvesting um, cycle after a cold, dark, wet, long winters in the largest and last intact temperate rainforest on planet Earth, which is in the central coast of BC where I come from, and what marked the end of our potlatch season. Um, and so it was kind of like this, 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 this new life, this vitality. And, and so, so herring hold a really special place in the hearts and minds and in the culture of the Hilfsduch, but they also hold a very special place in the commerce and trade so prior to colonizations, you know, we had systems of commerce and trade that were on um, a large scale um, trading up and down the coast uh, for herring roll on kelp and herring roll on branches, what we call antagabalis. And so, um, you know, with this said, this, this, this uh, I guess the magnitude and the space that herring hold for, for my people is, um, was undercut basically with the Fisheries Act that uh, legislated and controlled um, the fishing of both herring and the gathering of herring roll on kelp. So I'll just go into a little story about this. And in 1988, there was two young brothers, Heltzik brothers, and uh, they harvested some herring roll on kelp, just like their ancestors always had. And um, even though it was in, you know, contradiction and contravene the Fisheries Act, the policy and, you know, uh, the ministers, the DFO ministers allocation for herring roll and kelp on the central coast. Um, and so they went to go sell it, just like their ancestors always had, um, you know, trade it. And uh, they went to Richmond in the south, in, in Vancouver, and they were met with paramilitary force. And they were met with guns drawn on them and they were arrested. And so basically Canadian law criminalized them for being in relationship to herring as they had been for 14,000 years. And they didn't accept this. They said, no, we're not criminals. We will not accept this. We will not accept you calling us criminals for doing what we've always done. And so they fought, they went to the Canadian courts and uh, you know, this is after the, the constitution in 82. So section 35, one right. And they lost in the lower courts and they, you know, uh, made their way to the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, where they were vindicated that we did have, a, you know, commerce and trade. And it is part of the Section 35-1 rights, this commerce and trade. And so in 1996, the Supreme Court, um, yeah, vindicated these two brothers and validated that this is, we had commerce and trade. You know, we weren't just savages who, you know, bartered and traded. And you know it wasn't it was it was very a uh, beautiful complex system, um, and so that is to me uh, shows that you know we're literally just we come into conflict with the state with the Canadian state just for going fishing and selling that fish and being in relation and so just for the act of being helped we are criminalized and um, so that really showed that you know again the Canadian law wasn't for us. It's not, it wasn't, you know, the, the Fisheries Act wasn't constructed with Helptic in mind. Um, and so I think 
when I think about that, and then you also look at the destruction of the natural resources and the depletion of commercial fishing and the depletion of salmon and, and you know, old growth logging and, and how they just commodify our relations or these natural resources, as they call them, they commodify them and they take and they take and they take um, all in the name of money, capital and greed. Um, and so what's under Helsic law or what we call our Guelas, um, we need to protect the herring and take care of the herring because the herring take care of us. So when you go herring fishing, um, herring aren't like salmon. Herring can spawn up to six to 10 times in their lifetime. So they come spawn and, uh, and then they keep spawning. But herring fishermen take the herring and they take the roe right out of their, their stomachs. So they kill the fish and then they take the roe out. Whereas we set kelp and branches in the water where we know the herring are going to spawn and then they spawn on the kelp and branches. And so, you know, 100% kill rate fishery versus a uh, survival rate of when we do it of 99%. So that's, you know, that sustainable and actually enhancing the fishery, giving them and placing branches and kelp in the water and leaving some so um, more herring can come back. And so um, at the same time, when we're fighting for a right to have a, a uh, an economy in our community, a fishing economy, we also witnessed the collapse of herring on the BC coast where it's still closed off the west coast of Haida Gwaii, off the west coast of Vancouver Island. Um, you know, it was closed for an amount of time in, in our territory because there just wasn't no herring coming um, into our waters. And when they try to open a herring fishery in 2015, I remember I got a phone call and I was doing, I was in at UVic again doing a political science degree and I got a phone call right before finals. And it was my father and my father is a hereditary chief. And so he grew up listening to stories of his grandfather saying, I will defend this land with my life and my single shot rifle. And he grew up hearing stories, you know, at the kitchen table about um, the, how Raven obtained Harry and how, um, you know, the creation of these lands came into being. And so he always was a, you know, uh, adamant uh, fighter for indigenous sovereignty. And he was a land defender before it was cool to be a land defender, before they were even called land defenders. He was in a relationship to the land and water as a fisherman. And he called me and he said, you know, son, I'm tired. Uh, I, I think they're going to collapse. They're going to, they're going to, you know, collapse the fishery and I had nieces and nephews at this time who never ate herring eggs because there just wasn't enough they just didn't come back in numbers because they were being commercially fished so I uh, bought a shotgun and I went home and I said I'm not going to let this happen um, so I was, I was fairly young and and I didn't really have a plan but we I got home and we had a little community meeting and in all places of the church which is quite ironic if you know the indigenous relationship to the church we had this community meeting in the church and we were talking about what we're going to do and we talked about having our canoe or our gilwa and being flipped over by the herring nets and going into the water as like an act of you know direct action but non-violent and then we said well what if people drown get caught up in that herring net so we're trying to talk about all these things we talk about seal bombs talk about cutting cutting the herring net itself um destruction of property you know we're getting legal advice from lawyers about how to protect this this you know, this keystone species. Um, this is a small fish, but has a huge impact because everything comes to eat on it. And it's a, a key member of the food chain. And, you know, it's, it's our relation. We literally have stories about it being a relative. And so we were talking about how to protect this. And um, 
we said, okay, we're going to evict DFO because there's a DFO office up in Bella Bella on Denny Island. And so we went over there and under the uh, authority of the hereditary chief and the you know, tribal council, so both hereditary and elected leadership, we put this eviction notice on the DFO building and then people got ready to leave. And I was so infuriated, I was so mad because I seen this, this paddle that we gifted them as a community, a Gatawas paddle and Gatawas in our language means people gathering together. But to gather together, you have to be welcomed in, have a good heart, good mind. And so I, I basically confiscated that paddle, took it away from them, said they, they're not living up to that word, to that ethic. Um, and actually, you, you know, this, this state-sanctioned fishery threatened, you know, our whole relationship to herring, our whole knowledge base around herring, our whole, um, you know, our freezers to eat. Um, to, to feast on and, and then to barter and trade and supply with the rest of the coast. And so I confiscated that. And then I said, well, I'm not going to leave. And then um, the community basically rallied behind that. And we occupied the DFO office for four days. Um, and then when we were doing this, we had uh, community members shut down the DFO office in Vancouver. And we also had people shut down Save on Foods in Victoria because the uh, Patterson company, Jimmy Patterson's company, owns 99% of the herring leases. So he basically has a conglomerate of um, herring licenses. And so he said, it's not just the law, it's not just state sanction, but it's also the people who want to come into our territory and, and fish um, for, for profit, for profit. And that's the driving force behind this. So we shut down Save on Foods. We said, if you're not going to, uh, if you're going to steal from our freezers, we're not going to let you get into your grocery store. And so we did, and we shut that down in Oak Bay and Lekwungen territories in Victoria. And so we had all these direct action movements as we, you know, fought for basically not only the right to like have an economy off fish, but just sort of fish to survive. And what that taught me and how it informed my thinking is one, again, that law is not for us, but what happens when there's conflicting laws? Under our GUI laws, we had a positive obligation and a duty a health duty to protect the herring. And so under our laws, if we fail to act, we would be contravening our law. So there's two laws right ahead. And what I seen was, and just like Don and Bill Gladstone seen, you know, um, guns, rifles, um, the full sanctioned force of the Canadian paramilitary, just like what you see at Conestake in the, you know, the Oka crisis to the Wet'suwet'en, last year being removed from their lands at gunpoint. And so when we uphold our indigenous laws and try to protect something, not just for healthy people, but for the whole ecosystem, for that whole bio region, and we're trying to protect this little fish that has this huge impact, we're criminalized and you know we're, we're torn from our lands. But with the herring fight, we just like Don and Bill Gladstone, they were vindicated in the Supreme Court of Canada, the, the fishery did get shut down. And so we shut it down uh, that year. And now we have a basically consent-based model or joint management plan about um, herring. So any herring fishing that happens in our territory that needs to be signed off on by not only our scientists and technical teams, but our principal decision makers, which is our hereditary leadership and our elected chief and council. So that's what it showed me. It really was um, a very clear understanding that one indigenous laws have a lot of utility and value 
for Canadians and health, like healthic and non-healthic alike, but also there's, you know, we're, when we try to uphold our laws and not only enact our laws, because they're not just principles, it's the how, they're procedural. So in the process of upholding our laws, we're criminalized um, by the Canadian state. And so that really informed how I look at law and how we, how I interact with any set of laws, no matter where they're coming from. And so that's what I, I think about in terms of societies and what societies create as rules and constructs and what we choose to uphold. So our choices, you know, laws are only as strong as, like, so I have this elder back home, Liz Brown, and she says, our laws are only as strong as we hold them and make them. We're held in our hearts and our minds and we enact them. And I think that's true for a lot of laws, for Canadian law as well. You know, it's, they're only as strong as they're validated by the Canadian citizens. And that's why laws change and evolve. Like you look at the new cannabis law and, you know, the decriminalization of uh, uh, great gay marriage. And so these, these things, as our society evolves and things become okay, you know, the law evolves and changes as well. And so I think that's what I think about when I think about these different systems of law coming into conflict and confrontation. Based on your experience going to the University of Victoria in terms of studying both the Canadian common law and Indigenous legal orders, how have you found it based on your experience and how your lived experience has informed you and pushed you to, you know, law school? Um, how has it how has it been within the institution or a joint uh, law degree? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the joint law degree program, it's, it's in its infancy, right? And it's, it's how do we um, teach these, these laws? And it's so funny because it's like, okay, Indigenous laws, but whose laws? We're talking Cree law or are we talking you know, Inuit law? Or are we talking Stolo law, Mishka, who, uh, whose laws, right? And so I think that is one really important thing is, you know, we're not a homogenous group. You know, we're not this monolith of like just indigenous people. No, like we have um, a lot of our different um, nations have specific laws and we have laws around herring. But, you know, maybe the people of the river, um, like on, you know, the Fraser River won't have laws about herring because they're river people and inland people. And so I think that's where this program is, is in. It's, it's how to capture and how to teach indigenous law. And I think for me, it's, it's a huge, huge task to learn and then live Indigenous laws because it is, you know, we do live our laws and, and, you know, we do hold these values in our hearts and our minds, as our elders told me. Um, so to try and take that and like render it down and read articles and read decisions and you know what I mean, like create legal tests, um, that's, a, that's a tall task. But I think that there's value in it and I believe there's value in it because um, just like how when we stood up for the herring, the rest of the coast benefited. I think that's where um, we can see the value Indigenous laws bring to the table because, um, you know, Canadian law is fairly new. British Columbia law is fairly new. Well, we have laws. Our people have been in the Central Coast for at least 14,000 years. Think about that knowledge base that's built, built up over place. And so I, 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 think about, I think about that in terms of like what Indigenous laws can bring to the table and why they should be valid because you know there's utility in them and, and there's value in them and they're real and you could engage with them rigorously just like you can with Canadian law. Um, so, but I, I do think that's a tall task and I think that uh, you know just like going into any law program, it's not perfect. 
um, and it's, it's, it's tough. So I think as it's infancy, there's lots of room to grow. And I, I believe that it will grow. Um, but I also believe you need to have the right people there nurturing it. You need to nurture it. You need to have an open mindset about it. You need to, you need to actually take it as law, as the full weight of law from whatever, whether, you know, it's like, like we said, you know, Blackfoot, Celtic, Haida, whatever the law is. And so I think that's, that's part of it. it. It's how do we capture and teach it, but then who's people nurturing it and, and how are we nurturing it and how are we actually engaging with it in a meaningful way and not something that's just, you know, a novelty because it's not a novelty. Like these things are very useful and very valuable, especially as our societies, you know, march towards climate catastrophe and we have ocean acidification and we have, you know, all these things. And you look at the world with the pandemic right now, but also the, the, the current climate we're in, um, obviously place-based peoples have something to add to that conversation. And I think that's, that's where, where these laws need to go. And I think um, this program is one part of that, but it also happens in community. It happens in community, you know, building these laws and living these laws. And that means a healthy community. That means, you know, healthy individuals, healthy people. That's why I love Tugalik's piece on empowering those young women, creating healthy communities so we can have those healthy legal systems um, that benefit us all, right? So, the, so as, we, as we come together as a collective, I think that's a really important piece is, is making sure we have enough healthy uh, Indigenous people who have access to that knowledge and who have that knowledge. So Tugalik, you mentioned in your application that your goal after graduation is to work in the Justice Department in your community. What drew you to this area of law and how would you like to see it change going forward? What drew me to this area of law was um, when I attended Nunavut Sivuniksavut in Ottawa in 2016. I was able to learn then about our leaders who created Nunavut and worked on the land claims agreement and the hard work that they had accomplished and it was there where I learned more about what my grandparents and my mother were put through and I got to understand more about intergenerational trauma and that made me want to go into the field of law and the connection between trauma and violence was made clear to me and I was interested in learning about how the justice system works and my thought process then was forever changed and I wrote a paper on the relationship between Indigenous people in Canada and the RCMP, and it was clear to me that the RCMP is a colonial tool that oftentimes is that um, they're meant to protect us, but oftentimes we don't feel so protected. And I really believed that in order for Inuit and Indigenous people to be feel fully supported, through any of the ordeals they might have to go through when dealing with the criminal justice system in Canada, that they should work with people who are familiar with the language, the trauma, the communities, and with such a high turnover rate of transient individuals in Nunavut, um, nurses, lawyers, teachers, I really believed that by having lawyers from Nunavut and specifically from these communities, that they wouldn't have to further re-traumatize themselves by talking about their history or trying to explain family ties, the conditions of communities, overcrowding, and they would be better 
represented by somebody who does understand the language, who does understand the community and might feel more comfortable sharing. And I really believe that creating a relationship with your client base is extremely important if you're going to be a lawyer. And that was one thing that I hope that I'm able to provide for Nunavumi and individuals in my community a relationship where there's already trust. I think that that's so important. And that is one of the main goals of being a lawyer, right, is being able to serve and represent your client to the best ability that you're able to. And in being Indigenous, we have a unique sort of um, tool in the sense that we not only know the experience, but we want to be able to create that space, right? So I really appreciate that. Are you interested in any other areas of law? Since starting law school and doing different types of law, my interest has mostly been uh, in criminal law. That's where my work placement will be in Iqaluit. And I'm excited to learn about the way in which it operates and in Nunavut. Um, in the smaller communities, often it's done by circuit. So a team of lawyers from Crown and Defense fly in and they go to the communities in a makeshift uh, courthouse. And it, I really believe that by having a permanent lawyer who won't, won't have to travel in and out would be extremely beneficial. And Currently, the Kivalik Legal Services doesn't have a poverty civil lawyer, but they're able to refer clients to the appropriate lawyers in the different regions. And I think uh, Sonunavut is divided into three regions, Kivalik, Tagmut, and Qikikdani. And uh, where I live is in the Kivalik region, and I'm hoping that I can plant my roots at the Legal Services Board there and hopefully start my journey as an articling student there in the fall. I really believe that my passion for working with others and working within my community will serve me well in my future endeavors as a lawyer. That's beautiful. And I think just in terms of like an articling position in the area of criminal law, that would be like an amazing fit for you. And just to be able to be that sort of like bridge in between both, you know, Indigenous people in which you may know or not know within the community and be able to just have that experience. So you had said that you gravitate towards criminal law. Is there any other sort of area of law that is of interest to you? Yep, I really enjoyed family law. I really enjoy law where I'm dealing with uh, individuals as a whole because I find it makes me more, um, it's easier for me to concentrate because I understand the fact that these are individuals' lives and it makes me more careful. And even reading case law, I gravitate towards stuff that includes people as a whole, just because I think as a lawyer, you're going to have to be sensitive about your client base and the way you interact with them. And I think um, being able to put a face to the name makes it more real. And It'll help me be more careful because I'll know who they are and I don't know if it would be easier for me to work in a field of law where I wouldn't be working with people. I kind of thought about that after our programming this summer and working so closely with youth and learning about them and the circumstances that they're in 
for a brief second, it made me wonder if it would be easier if I did commercial law or business law instead of working with individuals. But then I realized like the whole purpose of me attending law school and what's driven me to work so hard was working for the people of Nunavut and being able to assist in creating a, a better territory and hopefully working from the inside out to deconstruct these colonial laws and placements that put Indigenous people at a greater risk than they already are at and creates more barriers than needed. Saul, you mentioned in your application that one of your motivations to pursue law is to breathe life into the Hailtuck legal system for the betterment of all Hailtuck and non-Hailtuck alike. What do you mean when you say that the Canadian law would greatly benefit from the revitalization of Indigenous law? So I think that when we look at Canadian law and what it has allowed um, and been used for against Indigenous peoples, we know it doesn't work. And that's why we have the incarceration rates that we do. That's why we have murder missing Indigenous women and girls. You know, that's why we have, you know, this this disproportionate um, representation of social ills, um, substance abuse, all sorts of types of abuse. And we know that's also a direct result from, you know, dispossession of land, from Indian hospitals, from residential schools, but it's also because we're living under a foreign legal system. And so I think that the first thing is a human aspect and human well-being is that our laws were, were, are, were built for us. And so I think that's about revitalizing that for ourselves, but also um, for the, the non-Indigenous the non, uh, peoples as well, because we all need to breathe air. We all need to drink clean water and we all need to basically live on what's currently known as Canada. And so we have laws that allow for a vibrant, healthy um, land base, water base, and right now, it's there, there's, those laws are being contravened, they're being broken. And so if you look at different Indigenous groups who are fighting, say, the Coastal Gasoline Project or Trans Mountain Project or Indigenous groups fighting to protect herring stocks, all these things are with it for their law and for the betterment, not just of, you know, the Shishwetmik or the Wet'suwet'en or the healthy drinking water and food resources, but for everybody. Because uh, as it is, non-Indigenous, Canadians also benefit from, you know, clean drinking water, clean air. And so it's, it's about recognizing uh, that Indigenous laws have a great value for Canadians and Canadians seeing that value and recognizing that value and, and also recognizing it as law, recognizing these, well, these actions under uh, a legal system that's quite uh, foreign probably to Canadians. But if we've been doing it for 150 years, I think it's time to catch up. I totally agree. And I think in terms of Sohwatam law, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the tellings that are the foundation of Sohwatam Uluh and how those laws were once actually recognized by what they what they refer as Sama'ui, which are the, the real whites and how there was a, a relationship in which they respected and acknowledged the Sukhwam people. But over time, through fur trade and all of those sort of historical systemic effects, those Indigenous laws or Sukhwam laws um, within Sukhwam Ulu were not, you know, abided by. And then hence the, the breakdown of and lack of acknowledgement and respect towards Sukhwam laws, right? So... I really appreciate how you frame that in the sense of 
breathing air, as you said, into into the Canadian legal system so that there is essentially a balance again. Absolutely. And I, I even think about in the Triple Team case in 2014 um, that validated their Aboriginal title. <clears throat> they didn't go after Sea Simple lands, even though that is their land, but they didn't go after Sea Simple. And uh, Roger Williams, who was the chief at the time, said, we're the only people in this world that can actually validate and sign off on those lands being um, being owned by in private ownership and fee simple. And we you know what? We're so generous. We will do that. We will sign off on this and we're just going after crown land. But those other lands that have fee simple, there's an encumbrance and that's our unceded title. And so I, I think about that and um, our laws, our Indigenous laws will validate Canadian laws and Canadian laws in ways that Canadian laws never could. You know, it, they'll validate them and, and give them um, legitimacy um, in kind of a multi-jurisdictional sense about validating these laws that are, are very foreign to these lands and come from these lands. And I think that's part of the evolution of law is about the integrated, you know, we have um, a word in, in help the club which is uh, Papagwala, to work together for the common good. And that's very close to what I think cooperative federalism is all about. And so, you know, the two, the two founding nations, but not only that, the Confederacy of, of Canada with the, the federal system, the provincial system, sharing sovereignty um, on certain things set out in the Constitution, whereas um, Helsic people work together in, you know, what would be considered Confederacy. So we know how to share sovereignty and responsibility to work together for a common good. And sometimes they won't always align, so there'll be a paramount to the law of whose law is paramount. But I really think that the act of, you know, Papagwala or cooperative federalism needs to be invoked to include Indigenous people's laws for the survival of all of us as we march towards, you know, like I said, climate catastrophe on the eve of climate change, things that, you know, we've done as humans. Um, so it's not just about the legitimacy, but I also think it's a sense of urgency from the natural world around us. Um, you know, asking for our help, demanding our help with these changes. And as Indigenous peoples, um, at least for the Hill stuff, when we're when that happens, there's an, a positive obligation on our legal system to provide help. And so I think that's where we're at now is is for Canada to recognize and seek out the the help that they need. And then I'm I'm pretty sure that the Indigenous people will respond in a way that's you know, both honorable and also in a way that, you know, they don't necessarily have to after the way we've been treated, but they'll probably rise to the occasion. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, as we move forward in the work that we're going to do in the Justice Department, as Tagalik had said, doing criminal law or family law or in the sense of what you're doing, hopefully being able to work back in community and just some of the work that I've done. I know that it is hard work, as you said, right? So it's being able to maintain and ground yourself in who you are and where you want to go with your people and also being aware of the, the healing that's going on or supportive of the healing that's going on in your community as well. So in, ensuring that your, your community is thriving alongside with you and that no one's getting left behind in, in, in that process, right? In terms of a legal practice, what would both of your ideal law practices look like? I think my ideal practice would be working in the North and working with Nunavut so that we can create uh, stronger relationships with our client base. And I would want to be seen as a trusted advisor where I have the time and freedom to build trust and so that I can work in a way that 
suits the specific needs of my clients. So I would love to be able to work with a client and just say they have addictions issues, you know, instead of saying, okay, well, you know, you're drinking, you have to quit drinking, you know, oftentimes that's like a a condition, but how can you expect an individual to quit drinking with no support? You know, you're kind of just setting them up to fail and you know they're going to keep reoffending. But I would love to see lawyers be able to recommend, you know, if we do go to court and be able to ask the judge, you know, is there an option for this individual to go to rehab instead of serving a prison sentence? They would love to work on themselves. They would love to see a change, but they need this from us in order to become a better individual or for domestic disturbances and violence. Uh, with the amount of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada being so high, you know, we have to provide provide support for the victim and not just their uh, the victim themselves, but for their family, you know, who witnessed the violence. And this is going to sound odd, but I was on a pa- panel for family and children uh, violence prevention strategy, and I'm currently working on that. And one of the recommendations that I made was that not only providing support for the victim individually, but the victim and the offender as a couple, because it's it's complicated to imagine, you know, being in that situation. But I think it's even more absurd of me for to recommend them going into counseling together or providing that as an option. But um, being in an abusive relationship, a relationship, you know, you oftentimes go back and if they are going to go back, you know, it would be better to provide them with support and tools in order to break those unhealthy habits, you know, and break the cycle of intergenerational trauma, you know, monkey see, monkey do, well, we can change that and we can act in a way so that we can be better for our children and for our families. And that's what I'm hopeful for, you know, rehabilitation instead of incarceration. Well, and I think too, like, the recommendation that that you've put forward is is sparks a light too of breaking down the stigma in which you know if you're going to go back to your partner when you're interacting with the justice system there's there is a stigma attached to that if you do want to go back and you know re-engage or 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 you know be with your family again so and and I wrote your recommendation is essentially you know fighting against that stigma so that the creating a space in which families, Indigenous families still can thrive and, and be able to, you know, move forward from um, engaging with the justice system and better able to, to access those resources in which they can. I think, too, it's also like observation in the sense of being Indigenous and you see the gaps, right? And then being able to respond to that in the ways that, you know, Indigenous culture you know, allows for as well in, in standing up Indigenous law in the ways that our, our families can thrive and our principles and our laws can be implemented within the justice system and that we are have access to resources so that our entire community and that reflects on, you know, our success moving forward. So my ideal practice, just like Tugali, could be uh, in community and specifically uh, my health at homeland and home waters and also uh, to be, you know, just working for my family, for, for my people, so I can go to the potlatches, so I can go to the feast, so I could be still, um, a, you know, a 
my Celtic person and my Celtic homeland. Um, and also selfishly too, so I could go herring fishing in the springtime and hunting in the fall. And I think that would be my uh, ideal law practice. And another thing is um, looking at it from more principled approach practice where it's not a business, but rather it's a principled approach to, to um, taking on um, work that um, aligns with my principles and my values as a healthy person rather than taking on clients that, you know, will can pay the most or whatever it might be. So I think um, that's also a, a big thing for my ideal practice. I, along with still being able to get out fishing and, and hunting and, and doing what I love to do and still be um, within my homelands, which I, I know is a tall task because there's, you know, there's no uh, law practices in Bella Bella at the moment, but hopefully when I'm done, there will be one. Nice. I think that that's, that rings truth in, you know, in my experience as well. And I think, and rings truth in how we were talking about healing and being, you know, being in community and all of that and doing that tough work, but also having access to our Indigenous territories so that we're able to, to maintain a, a well-balanced life, right? For sure. For sure. That's the hope. We'll see. Might be a young idealistic law student, but that's the hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel you there. So beyond law, what do you both like to do when you're not studying? When I'm not studying, I enjoy being with family, hanging out with my boyfriend and just cooking. I really enjoy uh, making meals and beating. When I'm home, though, um, after school and like during the summers and Christmas break, I really enjoy being out on the land, getting to go out with my family and my partner and just taking a little break from social media, the news. Um, COVID hasn't come here yet. So we're lucky in a sense where when we're out at the cabin, we're able to kind of take a break from everything and relax. I also enjoy sewing, um, but I have really strong family ties and I think that's the reason why I really like staying in the North. I enjoy being with family and creating relationships within the community and seeing all the cool stuff that community members come up with um, just through volunteer work. It's pretty amazing the difference volunteers make and individuals who just want better for their children and better for the community and the cool stuff that can be done just with support with community members. Nice. How about yourself, Saul? Yeah, I also come from a really big family. I have over 100 first cousins. So my mom's one of 17, my dad's one of six. So I have a huge family and all up and down the coast. Um, so I love to hang out with my big, beautiful family. Um, and same thing, hanging out with friends. Um, and then another thing, just like Tug the League, I love to get outside. Like I said, herring, uh, herring season is a really important part um, for for me as a healthy person. But also like being out on the land and water and, and being in relationship to it because you cannot manage what you don't know. And you cannot be uh, value what you do not know. And so my big thing is um, constantly getting outside and, and, you know, looking at old fish traps and plant gardens and seeing the brilliance of our ancestors um, and how they manage the territory, but also being in relationship to it. So, but also to me, that is studying law. 
that is studying our, our gray laws and our ancient laws is because if we live our laws and we hold it in our hearts and our minds and we get out on the land um, and we practice, you know, our traditional hunting and fishing and being in relationship. So it's the principle of relationality. So I do think that in a, in a, in a roundabout way, that is studying law, especially if we're going to give credence to Indigenous laws as law, then that is studying law to me. And, and that's part of um, being um, a, a practitioner of the Gwe Law or Healthic Legal Principles. I also love hanging out with my best friend, Rise. Awesome support there. So yeah, just hanging out and then being out on the land. And, and I think that is a, a part of uh, Indigenous legal systems is being where those laws first came into effect and where they where they were born of, which is the land and water which we come from as Indigenous people. Yeah, I totally agree in the sense of moving from essentially one classroom to another, like our our Indigenous spaces or the land it is that classroom, right? Like we we do move from that and that and going back to maintenance of mental health and taking care of ourselves and grounding ourselves. Those classrooms, they are the, another legal classroom and just as valid. And I always tell my girls too, because they're seven and 12, that, you know, we are going from our, we're learning from this abundance of our, our KO, which is my territory. And that, that is a classroom, whether they are really understand that concept or not. And it's essential to, to knowing who we are and where we want to go. I completely agree. And that's beautiful. What a wonderful, what a wonderful teaching they're getting. Yeah, I'm hoping so. Well, when I, when I grew up to um, my parents, I was very privileged that my parents, whether we liked it or not, as teenagers, they always brought us out onto the land. So, you know, I think it's a really essential, essential part of being Indigenous and, and um, having a sense of success and being grounded in, in who you are, right? So Beyond that, is there anything that either of you would like to comment or add that we haven't covered yet? For myself, I'd just like to say Wallace Gyasica, thank you very much to First Peoples Law um, for the support this past year, um, but also for all the work you do um, and just engaging with you. Even on this podcast has been uh, pretty illuminative of your principles and values and your approach to law. So I just want to thank you for that support but also the work and wishing you guys all the best thank you no i just wanted to say the same thing as saw like thank you very much for uh providing the scholarship it helped tremendously but not only that having us speak about our law school experience on this podcast i'm super appreciative of uh this opportunity but i also enjoy reading about the work that first people's law does i don't often follow very many law firms, but I do follow this one because I like reading the articles and it's very, you kind of have a connection to what's being written because it's often about the land and I enjoy reading about that and it's written so that you're able to understand it no matter who the reader might be. Awesome. And I just want to say I really enjoyed meeting you both. I do appreciate the conversation that we've had. And it's very enlightening and encouraging for me um, on my path forward in being a lawyer. And as we know, Indigenous ter- country is is very small. So I really appreciate meeting you both. And I'm sure that our, our paths will cross at some point in the future. 
Lastly, Tabe Masi, which is thank you in my language. Thank you for joining us on First Peoples Law Cast, Awetza. And also, thank you to First Peoples Law in, in, as you said, providing the scholarships for other Indigenous students. And also for me, because I'm uh, an articling student here at First Peoples Law. And I think that it's really encouraging, especially for the younger generation, to see themselves within the legal system and the process in which to become a lawyer. So, Tabe Masi, Awetza. You've been listening to Tagalog Eccles and Saul Brown, the first annual recipients of First Peoples Law's Indigenous Law Student Scholarship, in conversation with article student Charlotte Rose. First Peoples Law is a law firm dedicated to defending and advancing the rights of Indigenous peoples in Canada. We work closely with First Nations to defend their Aboriginal title, rights, and treaty rights, uphold their Indigenous laws and governance, and ensure economic prosperity for their members. For your latest news and analysis of Indigenous rights, sign up for our weekly Aboriginal Law Report on our website at firstpeopleslaw.com. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at First Peoples Law. Special thanks to A Tribe Called Red for the use of their track, Land Back, featuring Boogie the Beat and Northern Voice. Thanks for listening.